I'm going to do something a little different. Those of you who know me, won't, that won't surprise you. I'm going to ask all the men to come to the altar. I'd like to start a revival service at the altar. Amen. It's just going to go ahead and come on down here. Kneel, if you will. I'm going to ask you to get somebody to pray with. Maybe somebody you know, somebody you don't know. That you men find that you ladies stay in your pew there and pray together. And I'm going to give a few minutes to pray, and then I'll pray. Let's ask God to speak to us. I love church. I love congregational singing. I, I love to hear specials. I love offertories. But God said that he promised to bless the power of preaching. That's his chosen method to disseminate truth. And so tonight, let's ask God to do something special during the preaching time. If you'll just take a few minutes, pray there with somebody, uh, and ask God to bless in this part of the service, and then I'll pray. Oh, Father, now as we gather here around your word, thank you for these men at the altar. Thank you for these preachers that are here, these church members, the guests. Thank you for these ladies. We've all come tonight to hear from you. They did not come to hear from me. So, dear, sweet, Holy Spirit of God, would you settle on this place in mighty power? I pray you would take the words of God that are spoken from the scriptures and would you apply them to each of our hearts. I pray you would, first of all, give us listening ears. May we not just hear words, but may we hear your voice. I ask God you'd speak, first of all, to me, and then I pray you'd speak through me. But I'm not asking for you to bless a sermon. I'm asking for you to deliver a message. And may we not leave this place the same as we were when we came. Would you do something eternal in our lives? May we not be the same. May our churches be different. May our walk with you be different. And if there's one here that does not know Jesus and free pardon of sin, may tonight be that night they come to him. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, man. I appreciate you being willing to come to the altar. I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles, and I'm going to have you turn, I'm going to have you put a marker in three places, and we'll turn to one. I'll start with uh, the first one I want you to put a marker in, and we'll come to it. Don't worry if you get into the message, you don't think I'm going to get to that verse. I will. Heard Tom Malone say one time, somebody asked him, why do you read so much scripture before you preach? He said, because if you read enough scripture, if you get persecuted in one verse, you can flee to another. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight. All right, put a marker, if you will, in the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number six. Isaiah six. Your second marker will be in 1 Kings 18. You have a marker in Isaiah 6, one in 1 Kings 18, another marker in Genesis chapter 22. I'll give you a moment to do that. My love here, no pages turned. That's music to a preacher's ears. I love what it said about the people at the synagogue in Berea when Paul came there. It says that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. That means they came to the house of God ready to hear scripture. And then it says, and they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They didn't believe something just because somebody at the house of God said it. They believed it because it was in the book. What I say does not matter. What I say is just opinion. What God says is authority. So we're going to use the word of God. So you're going to mark in Isaiah 6, 1 in 1 Kings 18, 1 in Genesis 22. Now let's turn to the book of Genesis. That one's easy, even for Brother Duke. He can find that one. Genesis, it's the front of the book. So he can find that one. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. do appreciate the folks from faith over here. And uh, just uh, looking forward to what God will do in the remainder of the service. Amen. But you notice it is 7.51. All right, I'll tell you what time it is. You don't need to worry about it anymore. We're going to have food here afterwards. So you don't have to worry about getting to McDonald's. Amen? Amen. I came for preaching. I, I didn't come to get out. I came to get in. Genesis chapter number 12. Look at verse number 1. 
We'll read the first eight verses. I'll read them aloud. Just follow along. Keep your Bible open here to Genesis because we won't be done here. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I'm going to pause right there. This is the Abrahamic covenant. We must not forget God made promises to Abraham that was then transferred to Israel that he did not make to us. He is not done with Israel. By the way, that's why I know I will not be here during the tribulation period. That's Jacob's trouble. God's going to deal with Israel again. He's not done yet. They're going to deal with some sin from years ago, centuries ago. God's not done with that. Just because God didn't deal with your sin this week doesn't mean he doesn't know it's there. All right, so that's what's going on here. And in verse number three, we as America better believe this verse and practice it. I will bless them that bless thee. And curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. Into the land of Canaan they went. I'm sorry, they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, uh, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. This place that we've just read about is the place of Bethel. It's a place where God begins to tell Abraham what he's going to do with him. He calls him and tells him to leave everything he knew. You ladies, how would you like to have your husband come home and say, Pack up, honey, we're moving. Where are you moving to? I don't know. How are we going to get there? God will tell us. Try renting a U-Haul that way. I want to rent a truck. How long are you going to need it? I don't know. Where are you going? Can't tell you. You're not getting a truck. Okay, can I tell you? But here God had spoken to Abraham, and and Abraham obeys God. He he by faith leaves the earth of Chaldees, and he goes, and goes where God told him to go. He begins to, to, uh, to serve the Lord. I want you to notice it says in verse number 8, in the middle of the verse, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. That was the place where Abraham met God. I want to preach tonight on the thought, the forgotten altar. The first altar that God will call you to is that altar of salvation. Where you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you realize that you are a sinner. That you have broken God's law and you have no right to enter His presence. The only right you have is hell forever. We have a generation, I want my rights, not me. I want mercy. I want grace. That you come to the Lord Jesus and you, you repent of your sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Aren't you glad God called you to an altar? I remember that night in June of 1972 in, in, in Piqua, Ohio. My dad was holding a children's revival meeting. And on that Friday night, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but that night I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Jesus said in John 6, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No man, nobody gets saved unless God draws him. That's why you can't trick somebody into getting saved. That's why soul winning's not salesmanship. You don't get them to just pray a prayer. There must be conviction of the heart. Holy Spirit must deal with them. There must be repentance of sin and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But then Jesus said in verse 37 of that chapter, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Aren't you glad when you got saved? God said, I'll never cast you out. He wanted everybody to be saved. You know, after you've gotten saved, the first thing you ought to do is just build an altar. Find a place where you will regularly meet with God. Here in our story, we see Abraham, he's, uh, Abram as he's called here, and, and, and he, he was called of God, and, and he leaves the earth of the Chaldees, he leaves everything that he knew, and he, he began to follow the Lord, began to walk with him. What a man of faith. And he came to that place of Bethel, he built that altar. But something happened here in chapter 13. We won't read the entire chapter, but in verse number 10... It says, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. God said, I want you to leave the the Chaldees, and I want you to go to the land of the Canaanites. I'm going to give you this land. It's yours. And he, he had enough faith to leave the the Chaldees. But when difficulty came, what happened to Abraham? He ran to Egypt for help. Why? Because he could get a job there. It made sense. Can I tell you the will of God usually doesn't make sense? Our problem as believers, we try to figure it all out. Abraham, he had a lapse of faith, if you will. He he went to Egypt, but he got in trouble down in Egypt. He went to Egypt, but he never got over Egypt. I wish we had time to go into that, but we don't. But um, He left the place God had called him to, and he went to the place of Egypt. By the way, Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world. It's a picture of what God saved us out of. Amen? Aren't you glad that when you got saved, God changed you? Hallelujah. But it's interesting. If you look there in chapter 13. It's after he gets in trouble in Egypt. In fact, he gets kicked out of Egypt. And by the way, it's the way it is. When a child of God leaves the place of God and goes back into the world, the world knows you don't fit there. They'll look at you like, what are you doing here? And I'll get to that in a little bit. But he, he goes to Egypt and they know you don't belong here. And he leaves. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even, notice this, to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. See, I want you to understand what's going on. He had been called to leave the early Chaldees. He goes to Bethel and his obedience to God. God makes some promises to him. He builds an altar there. He meets with God. He worships God there. But in a lack of faith, he turns from God, leaves that faith, goes back to the world, and before God can bless him again, He's got to go back to Bethel. You see, an altar, if you're taking notes, number one, is a place of spiritual renewal. Remember what it was like the night you got saved? Remember how excited you were? Remember how you wanted the whole world to get saved that night? I remember when I was in, South, in West Virginia as an assistant pastor. We had a young teenage girl. She got saved and she got excited. She went into our track rack and took every track in the track rack on a Sunday morning. And by Sunday night, she came back and she said, Preacher, I need more tracks because I handed out all of those. She took over 200 tracks. We refilled the thing. She took them all again. And, and, and she did that every service. She'd take a couple hundred tracks. When was the last time you took a pile of tracks and went down the street and knocked on doors? Hey Amen. You can say Ben right there or oh me, one of the two, whichever fits. We say we believe in soul winning, but we don't even carry in our pocket a track or a New Testament. How do we expect to help sinners if we're out and about and we've got, we've got our phone, but we sure don't have a New Testament? We don't have a track. Hello. 
You see, if you're ever going to go forward for God, you're going to have to come back to an altar, to a place of spiritual renewal. It's interesting, the word Bethel, it's two words in the Hebrew put together. Beth, which means house, and El, which means God. The word Bethel literally means house of God. That's what it means. I like it, amen? And I understand it doesn't mean a church building right here. But I think spiritually we can apply that. Uh, Coming down to the church house is a good place to come. But you ought to have some personal altar space at your house. By the way, as a child of God, it ought to be a regular thing for you to come to an altar at your local church. Let me just say this. When I say spiritual renewal, here's what I mean by this. If there's ever been a time in your Christian life that you are closer to God than you are right now, you are backslidden and you need an altar to get right with Him. You need spiritual renewal. I need spiritual renewal. If there's ever been a time when you wanted to serve Him more than you want to serve Him now, then my friend, you need an altar of spiritual renewal. The children of Israel as they were traveling from Egypt under Moses. And they had left Egypt and, and, uh, they, after all the plagues, and, and they had gone from, from the Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea. They did that in just a matter of a few days, really. It wasn't long at all. They sent out the 12 spies. Ten said, we can't go. The people are too big. We're too little in their sight. Or in our sight, excuse me, is what they said. And Joshua and Caleb wanted to go forward. It was Caleb who stood up and said, let us go up at once for we are well able to possess it. Thank God for men of faith. Amen. Amen. And and so what did they do? They they decided that, that they wanted to go forward. The nation of Israel did not want to. So what did they do? They refused to go. And for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. You get to Joshua's day after Moses had died. And Joshua is now the leader, and we won't look at it for sake of time, but in Joshua chapter number 5, they're, they're, they're going into the promised land, they're dividing up all the land, and, and, and they've, they've, come, uh, they've gone past all the Amorites, and, and they had this, this great victory. This is after you know, the two memorials that were built there at Gilgal. But in Joshua chapter number 5, it's very interesting. When you get to the scriptures, it says... In verse number 6, For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land, which the Lord swore unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth milk and honey. And their children whom he had raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. Now, I want you to think about that. Circumcision was the mark God put on the Jewish people that separated them from the world. That's how you knew they were different than anybody else. But they didn't do that during the 40 years of wandering. They had done it under the tabernacle, but during that time of wandering, they did not. They let it slip. And here Joshua chapter number 5 is they're beginning their conquering of the land. Verse number 7, they they circumcised them and they waited until they were whole. Then in verse number 9, in the Lord's turn to Joshua, this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off of you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. Isn't it interesting The children of Israel, before they could go forward for God and have the blessing for God, there had to be a time of an altar. They had to come back to what they had left. They had to come back to the circumcision. And when they did, God said, Today have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt off of you. You know what I find a problem in many believers today? We have too much Egypt on us. What do you mean? We got too much of the world. We dress like the world. We talk like the world. I get real nervous when I hear Christians quoting popular movies. Words of Scripture ought to come out of your mouth, according to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1.8, this word of the Lord shall not depart out of thy mouth. 
What are we talking scripture? It ought to be normal for you at work when, when the boss tells you something, you respond with a spiritual answer. But how many times even in the things of God, we respond with a movie answer? Our music sounds like the world. Our dress standards like the world. Our haircuts are like the world. People want to ask me all the time, Brother Randberg, why do you wear a suit when you preach? Because I want them to know they're looking at a preacher. I walk into church, I don't want it looking like a nightclub. I want you to know you're in church. That's why I like wooden pulpits. Amen. I was preaching in church one time, had one of these little acrylic ones. And uh, they, they, they didn't have it the last time I was there, and they had it. And I looked at the preacher, I said, that may not work tonight. Why? Because I'm a pulpit pounder. I said, I might break that thing, amen? But uh, I'm just saying that we ought to look and act like a Christian. When was the last time you were in a store and somebody just walked up to you and asked you, are you a Christian? It ought to be a normal thing. People to recognize that you're a child of God. When we have too much of the world on us, we have any of the world on us, God says you have a reproach. When they return to the altar, when they return to what they had left, then God could bless them. Give you another, quickly, another Bible illustration. I love illustrations. Uh, uh, I love stories. And a lot of times I use personal stories. But tonight, most of my illustrations will be Bible illustrations. Uh, Gideon, one of my favorite Bible characters. Gideon, who was, God found him down in a, in a, in a, a wine press, down in a pit, threshing wheat. I wish I had time to talk about that story. But that is not a picture of a mighty man of valor. That's a picture of a very afraid individual. But God called him in Judges chapter 6. It says Judges 6, 24, Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Oprah of the Abrazites. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Balaam that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou hast cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And, and so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, but he went by night. You understand what's going on? The children of Israel, as they did over and over in the book of Judges, had left the things of God. They had left his blessing. They had built altars. They began serving uh, the wrong gods. They had altars to these false gods. And God said, okay, Gideon, before I can use you, before I can deliver Israel, I need you to go to the altars of Baal that your dad built. Tear it down. Can you imagine? Tear it down and build a new altar. Take the wood from the old altar and from the groves. Take the wood from the groves that were, those were trees and stuff planted by the old altars. Cut those down and burn that on the new altar. He said, but I can't bless you until you get rid of that other stuff you've put in my place. An altar is a place of spiritual renewal. In your Christian life, what is it that's taken the place of God? What is it that now is more important to you than Sunday night church? What's more important to you than tithing? What's more important to you than giving to missions? God says that needs to be removed and burnt on the altar. See, an altar is a place of spiritual renewal. You know what our problem is? We want to have an easy Christianity. We want to live any way we want to and ask God to bless what we're doing. You hear me tonight. God does not bless what you do. He does not bless what I do. He blesses what He does. And if you want His blessings, you find out where, what He's doing and get involved in it. The old preacher in the South word it this way, get under the spout where the glory comes out. Our problem is we, we like this kind of thing. We, we like this music or we like this style of service. What we ought to do is say, God, what have you ordered from your word? 
That's what I will do. Over and over again, the children of Israel had adopted the religion and the worship practices of the heathen. And God said, I cannot bless you, Gideon, till you tear down that old stuff. It happened again in Josiah's day when he was just a lad. He tore down the old altars. Who built those altars? It wasn't the heathen that built them. It was the people of God. I'm a history nut. I love history. And America was born out of the Great Awakening. Most people don't realize how the Great Awakening began. In New England, churches were dwindling in size. The communities had become very wicked and sinful. You think America's sinful now. It was just as wicked in the, in the 1600s. And they began to have a problem with filling their churches. And so Brother Duke, they started trying to come up with ways to get people in. And so they came up with this thing. A man by the name of Solomon Stoddard. He pastored in Northampton. Massachusetts. He came up with an idea. They called it the Solomon Doctrine. They would allow, uh, you, didn't, you could join the church without being given a testimony of salvation. Now according to the Bible, to be a part of a church, you've got to be saved and baptized before you're added to a church. But they said, well, if we do that, we won't get all of our young people to join. So they would allow the young people to join the church as long as their parents had given a testimony of salvation. Then it got so far as they said, well, as long as they don't live too wickedly, they can still be a member of the church. And for the next generation, it became to where most of the people in church were lost. I heard B.R. Lakin, the great evangelist, say that he believed at least 80% of members of independent Baptist churches were lost. The older I get, the more I've been in the ministry, the more I believe that number to be accurate. And so it became where even the preachers were not saved in Massachusetts. Then God brought a young man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. You may have heard of him. He preached a series of sermons in Northampton on justification by faith. I remember in a public high school in Ohio, we studied one of his sermons in English class, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody ever read that sermon? It will scare the life out of you. He describes sinners as like a, a spider that's woven its web over the top of an open hearth of a fireplace, and the fire's burning underneath, and he got that spider hanging by one thread. I hate spiders, by the way. I killed two of them this week. But it's hanging there. He said, just one movement of the master of the house will plunge that spider into the flames. He said, and that is the way a sinner is, dangling over the eternal fires of hell in one movement from the Almighty, and you'll plunge there forever. That's in his sermon. He preached that sermon without a lot of fanfare. He read his sermons in a monotone. He was nearsighted, read his sermons like this. By the time he got to the end of his sermon, people were holding the post of the building, begging God to save them before they dropped into the pit of hell. He preached against the doctrine of Solomon Stoddard. You say, why is that so important? Because that was his grandfather. His grandfather had been the pastor before him. Can you imagine standing up in your grandfather's pulpit and denouncing his heresy? What happened? He went back to an altar. God said, I'll bless that. That was the spark of the great awakening. George Whitfield came, became the voice of it. And revival fires spread across America. Man, I wish I had time to tell you more about that. But it happened with, you don't know what else I have to say tonight. We've got to get back to an altar. A place of spiritual renewal. Second of all, I I asked you to mark a place there in Isaiah. Let's go there, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. It's an amazing passage right here. Here the prophet is writing, beginning of verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, and each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. By the way, why do you say holy three times? Because the Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Spirit is holy. 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice the response of Isaiah. Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw God for who He is, he said, Oh no, look at me. I'm wicked. I'm undone. You know why we play in our sin? You know why we walk in our sin? You know why we think we can live any way we want to as a child of God? Because we don't see God as He is. We don't fear the Lord anymore. We decided a long time ago, we want an easy Christianity. But if we're going to have revival, we've got to see we serve a holy and a righteous God that hates sin. He hates sin so much, He was willing to destroy His own creation over it. He hates sin so much, He sent His perfect sinless Son from eternity in heaven to earth to take upon him the form of a man and live 33 years without sin but be tempted in all points like as we are. He hates sin so much he allowed his own son to be nailed to a cross. He allowed the guilt of our sin to be put on him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did not become a sinner. But when he hung on Calvary's cross, he took your sin. He took my sin. He took the sin of every person who has ever lived on him. Matthew describes that when God saw that sin on him, the Father turned his back on his son. The sky was black as midday, uh, uh, black as midnight at midday. The sun was blotted out while the son of God was dying. And in that darkness, Jesus cried out, My God, he speaks to the Father. My God, he speaks to the Holy Spirit. Why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus went through that because of that sin you like playing with right now. That's what it cost God to get you back. God, because He is holy, couldn't let man just come back. God is love. Thank God He's love. But God, besides being loving and kind and gracious and merciful, He is holy and just. God in His love says, I want man back after man sinned in the garden. But His holiness said, sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. How was God going to balance his love and his mercy with his holiness and his justice? Only one way. The Son of God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our problem is we don't see sin the way God does. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7 verses 12 and 13. Wherefore the law is holy. The commandment, holy and just and good, was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Our problem is we don't see sin the way God does. Man calls sin an accident, God calls it an abomination. Man calls sin a blunder, God calls it blindness. Man calls sin a a, a chance, God calls it a choice. Man calls sin a disease, God calls it a defeat. Man calls it a luxury, God calls it a leprosy. Man calls it a mistake, God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness, God calls it willfulness. Let me put that right to where we live. We, I hear people talk about, oh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. No, you're not. That's a disease somebody made up. You're a drunkard. That's the Bible term. It's not an alternate lifestyle people live in. God calls them homosexuals, sodomites. Let's call sin, sin. Our problem is we want somebody to preach against sin, but we don't want them to name it. Well, just do better. No, get right with God. We want to have a revival like they had in Billy Sunday's day. Then maybe we need on the side of the highways like they did in his day where they had signs, get right with God. 
Isn't it interesting when they had revival in his day, the breweries closed. You know why? The brewery owner got saved. You know why they don't close today? We let them join our churches and we go drinking with them after church. And by the way, we just say this, God's against alcohol. He said we're not to touch it. We're not even to look upon it, Proverbs says. What are you saying? Let's just call sin what it is. We've got to get back to hating sin the way God does. You see, an altar is a place of spiritual renewal. I'm going to tell you, I'll remind you of a story. You know it. In 2 Samuel chapter number 11, David sent the, the men out to war. And he stayed home. He was supposed to be in battle. He was a warrior. Even as king, he was a warrior. He stayed home that night, went up on top of the palace. And that night he saw Bathsheba bathing herself. Let me just say this, Bathsheba was not innocent in this. Women didn't bathe on the rooftops in the, in the sight of the king. Just stay with me. Some of you are going to get real mad at me in a minute. That's okay, I don't care. David said, who is that? What David should have done right there was get right with God over, over his lust. But he called somebody to him and said, who is that? Well, that's, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You understand Uriah was one of his mighty men? Exactly. Those were the men that had laid down his life for him. That man right now was at the battlefield. And David said, well, bring her to me. She could have refused. She could have gone as being summoned, then find out what David wanted and said, no way, king. But we don't see that in Scripture. David committed adultery with her. Then he found out she was with child and tried to cover it. He brought her husband home. He brought Uriah home and, and brought him into his palace. Said, I want you to go home and just spend the night with your wife. You're such a great soldier. And Uriah, such an honorable man, said, King, I can't do that. My men are out in the field of battle right now. I will not go and lay with my wife in the comfort of my home while my men are in battlefield in fear of death. He didn't even go in his home that night. He slept outdoors. David found out about it. He sent Uriah back. He sent word. You put him in the most dangerous place in battle, you make sure he dies. David was a bloody man. That's why he didn't get to build the temple. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends a prophet to the king. Nathan comes to him. Tells him a story. He said, King, let me tell you a story. There's a man who's got all kinds of flock. He has tons of, of sheep. But he went to his neighbor's flock and took that little pet lamb, one he kept in the house. And he took it and killed it and ate it. David was wroth. He said, that man, is, he's going to pay back fourfold. And, and, and he's going to be judged for that. And that prophet of God stuck his finger in the face of the king and said, Thou art the man. Now, the truth is, David was a man after God's own heart, but David sinned. The best thing about David, he was a good repenter. Now, God forgave the sin, but he never excused it. David dealt for the rest of his life with the results of that sin. You do not think you can sin and think you can get away with it. You do not sow to sin and pray for a crop failure. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, Galatians tells us. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, in verse number 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know the problem with most of our churches? We won't say that. I made a mistake. No, you sinned. You're not going to get forgiveness until there's repentance. I wish we had time to look at repentance. I've got some sermons out there on repentance. It's the only way forgiveness is possible when repentance is offered. Then God says, okay, I'll forgive. David repented. It says there, verse number 13, and, and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. You see, by law, David should have died. God showed mercy right there. Bathsheba should have died. They should have both been stoned. Verse 20 of that same chapter, then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel 
and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then came, then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Here's the point. When David repented, he washed himself, he changed his clothes. Repentance will change how you dress. Amen. It'll change how you look. During that time, he was mourning for the child that died, the child that he and Bathsheba were going to have out of sin. God did not let the child live. David paid fourfold. But after that, was, after that was done, when he had repented, he washed himself, changed his clothes, and he went back to eating with his family. Everybody knew David had been to an altar. Let me ask you, when was the last time the people you work with knew you'd been to an altar? When was the last time your family saw you serve at an altar after preaching? You know why we have rebellious children? Because they, they watch us sit in church. They hear the same sermon we do. And they know the preacher just preached on our sin as dad. And they watch us as dad stand in the pew of the invitation and never go to an altar. Never get right about the thing our kids know we're dealing with. And they go home saying, well, dad doesn't have to do it. Mom doesn't have to do it. Why should I? And we wonder why we raised a generation of, of rebellious people. Because they have become what we taught them to be. That we did not come to an altar with, spirit, with, with spiritual inventory. You see, we, we come to that altar, first of all, for spiritual renewal. To get, our, get our, our, our commitment to God back. To get back to serving Him. But it's also the place we come. To get right with our sin. There's so many places I'd like for us to. I'm going to tell you this quickly, this story, then we'll move on. Last summer I was in the capital of Papua New Guinea. I was in the capital of Port Moresby. I was preaching in a youth conference. They called it Youth Quest. Over 200 teenagers from around Papua New Guinea were there. We were preaching in, in one of the services, and, and I like to give direct invitations. You'll see that in just a few moments or a couple hours, whenever it is we get to it. And when it came to the end of the preaching, I called the people to the altar. I, I dealt with how many, you know, I, I preached the one message I told you about uh, where we invited the young men to surrender their lives to the will of God. 32 men walked the aisle that day. And surrendered their lives to whatever God wanted for them. In other services where he preached on sin and they would come and flood the altar. We have pictures of the altar where there's literally over a hundred people at the altar. Some services there were less people in the pew than there were at the altar. And the invitations went for two hours. And three hours. Our problem is we spend hours in pulpits and minutes at the altar. We're in a hurry to get out. You see, when God deals with you about something in church, it may be during a congregational song. If God dealt with you, you ought to flee to an altar immediately. Yep. Churches I've pastored, I've told folks the altar is never closed. It doesn't matter if in the, middle of the, in the middle of the announcement God deals with you. Now, that would take a miracle of God for anybody to be dealt with in the announcements. Amen? Because nobody listens to those, brother. Amen? I told our folks, it doesn't matter when you come. I remember one time we had our song leader up leading a congregational song, and God gripped him. He left the pulpit and went to the altar. I just turned to another man and had him go and finish the song. That's what I'm talking about. A place of spiritual inventory. When was the last time you humbled yourself before God and you said, God, what is it that needs to be fixed? You know why we don't make decisions at an altar? Our pride. Why don't anybody know? You know, the Bible talks about people like you. And like me, Revelation chapter 3, God is describing the church at Laodicea. And he says, because thou, art, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with good and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Let anoint thine eyes with thy salve that thou mayest see. You know why we don't have revival? We don't think we need it. And I'm an evangelist. I love revival meetings. I'm going to just tell you, I hate Bible conferences. 
Bible conferences will encourage you, they'll strengthen you, but I've never seen one change a church. But I've watched churches that bring an old-fashioned evangelist in, just let him preach all week long. I've seen God deal with sin and people come to an altar and get right and it change everything. Yeah. I remember back in the, the summer of 1999, I was at Mount Salem Revival Grounds in West Union, West Virginia, under the big tabernacle. Dr. Ron Garris preached that night. He preached first. The second preacher was going to be my dear friend, Brother Gary Lovins. He pastors in Fort Wayne, Indiana. At that time, Brother Lovins pastored in Parkersburg, West Virginia. I was his assistant. The first preacher that night was Dr. Ron Garris, the head of the Rock of Ages Prison Ministries in Heaven Now. He got up to preach and preached just a fabulous message. It was amazing. He didn't even get to the end of his sermon. People flooded to the altar. And I was, sitting, I was on the platform. We had all the different preachers up here. And sitting right next to me was Brother Lovins, who was going to preach next. We hadn't planned an invitation right there, but God did. In the middle of that message, when the spontaneous invitation happened, a man with a whole group of people left from right back here and came down the altar. He skipped the altar and came up on the platform and he walked right up to Brother Lovins. I got a little bit close just in case he needed help. I didn't know what the guy wanted. He looked at Brother Lovins and he said, Pastor Lovins, I didn't come to hear you tonight. I came to hear Brother Garris. I'd planned to leave when he was done. He was a member of a church across town from our church. And he had been giving our church and our pastor a lot of trouble. He had been spreading rumors and gossiping. He said, Brother Lovins, you know you and I have had a problem, and it's been me. And tonight, I didn't come to hear you. I came to hear Brother Garris, but I heard from the Lord. Brother Lovins, I need to get right with you. I need to get right with your church. I'd like to address the crowd publicly. And he did. He spoke to the crowd. Unbelievable invitation took place then. His whole church came down. The people who had been fighting against Brother Lovins came to him. Brother Lovins' members that were there, they went to them and began to get right. That invitation went for over an hour. I'll never forget it. We got done with that, and we were supposed to have a special song and then preaching, and I remember Dr. Randy Taylor, who runs the camp, leaned over to Brother Lovins. He said, I want you to go preach. He said, I don't feel like it. He said, I want you to go preach. Brother Lovins walked to the pulpit with tears streaming down his face. And he literally stood there for over five minutes. Now, we say that uh, 30 seconds is a long time of just quiet. He just stood there weeping. He hadn't even opened his Bible. Finally, he said, I don't even know if I'm supposed to preach. That man stood up back there and he said, Brother Lovins, you know what we did on the, on, the, on the platform that I got right with you. And I got right with your church. And other people got right with you. I think you ought to preach. Brother Lovins stood there for a couple more minutes and then he preached. By the time he got done, this was the invitation that went to 1 o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget it. I remember they were just, and we didn't, at, the end of the, at the end of his preaching, there was no singing. There was nobody playing the piano. There was people in an altar. Youth groups were getting right. Kids were going to their parents and getting right. I remember Brother Taylor grabbed all of us preachers and huddled us up right on the side of the pulpit. He said, fellas, I want you to look at this. We did not do that. He said, gentlemen, that's what revival looks like. What's the problem with our churches? We've never seen that. Because we think we can sit in a church pew and have something against the guy across the aisle. And we'll just sit in a different part of the church and it'll be okay. Not until you get right, it won't. It took one man by the name of Achan to steal a little bit of gold, a little bit of silver, and a little bit of Babylonia's garments... For Israel to lose a battle at Ai, it cost, it cost Achan his, his life, his wife's life, and all of his children's lives. Why? Because one man sinned. You know what revival meetings are about? Altars. Where we have spiritual renewal, but it's a place where we do spiritual inventory. Now, there's a lot more to my message, but I'm not going a step further. 
Because God just said, stop right there. I don't know what you need tonight. But I do know this, all of us need an altar. If tonight you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, just a moment. We're going to have the pianist come and play. Where's my brother who was playing earlier? If I get him to play. Uh, we'll play, is your all on the altar? That's what I'd like. In fact, if you go ahead and move to the piano. We get a pianist to the piano. All right, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. We're not going to have any singing. I just want piano. I want to have everybody free to move to an altar. But if you could play Israel on the altar. Maybe tonight you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to ask Pastor to come stand right down here at the front. Pastor, if you'd stand here. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, would you come tonight to that altar of salvation and trust Jesus? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around who would say tonight, Pastor, I know if I died today, I'd go to heaven, no doubt about it. I've been saved. You raise your hands, I know I'm saved. Let me see your hands. Praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to have saved people? Put your hands down. Who would say tonight, preacher, I don't know for sure if I were to die and go to heaven, but I'd like to know that. Would you pray for me? Would you lift your hands? That's me. I don't know, but I'd like to know. Who would say tonight, Brother Brandberg, to be honest, I need that altar of spiritual renewal. I'm not as close to God as I once was. My Bible reading, my prayer time, my church attendance, my faithfulness to God is not what it used to be. Preacher, that's my need. Pray for me. Would you lift your hand? That's me. I need some spiritual renewal. Would you come to an altar right now? Just go ahead and make that your way. You raise your hand, just slip onto the altar. You don't need to wait for, I'm going to pray in a minute, but you don't need to wait for me. So I need some spiritual renewal. Who would say to that preacher, to be honest, I need some spiritual inventory. I'm not going to go down through the sin list. I could, but I think the Holy Spirit will do a better job tonight. Who would say, preacher, there's an area in my life where God's already dealt with me about some sin. And I need to get that right. Preacher, pray for me. Would you lift your hand? So there's some things in my life that are not right. Maybe some things you know you're, you're doing you shouldn't do. And maybe something you're not doing you know you're supposed to. Say, preacher, tonight, there's an area in my life where I know my heart's not right with God. Pray for me. Would you lift your hands? And that's me. I'm just going to be honest. In a crowd this size, I promise you, there are people here who have sin in their life. And the reason we don't have revival is because we'll sit in a pew like you're doing right now and not come to an altar and deal with it. You may have bitterness in your heart against a church member. You may have something in your heart. You may be mad at God. You're not going to have victory until you come deal with that. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight to come back to the altar. May we not neglect the altar. Would you, as David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. God, would you go up and down the avenues of our heart tonight and point out that sin to us. Holy Spirit of God, would you grip us with conviction and bring us to an altar. We may do business with you. May we not leave here playing with that sin. This may be the last time you deal with us about it. You may write us off and say, I'm done with them. We may go to home, we may go to heaven early because we refuse to deal with our sin. Help us to be willing to humble ourselves before you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.